I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Really with uh, Tom and Dave. I'm Dave Foley uh, of the Dave half, and the other half is Tom Wheeler, and you can probably guess who that is. Uh, and with that, I hand over to Tom. Yeah, we have a, an amazing guest here today. Um, Ralph Blumenthal was a reporter for The New York Times from 1964 to 2009. He's written seven books on investigative crime reporting and cultural history. His latest book, The Believer, Alien Encounters, Hard Science, and the Passion of John Mack, which is great, was published by a High Roads Books of the University of New Mexico Press on March 15, 2021. It's the first biography of Pulitzer Prize-winning Harvard psychiatrist John E. Mack, who risked an esteemed career to investigate stupefying accounts of human abduction by aliens. Uh, Ralph is also the author of a new children's picture book with his wife, Deborah Blumenthal, entitled UFOs, Mysteries in the Sky. And we're thrilled to talk with Ralph today. How are you? Uh, good to see you again. Okay. Nice to see you. Thanks so much for doing this today. Okay. Glad to do it. Well, listen, I, I, the, I think we just super curious to hear your um, experience uh, in, in terms of this 2017 story the, the, that kind of broke open this conversation, it feels like the UFO conversation is either before 2017 and after 2017. It really was a kind of threshold moment. And uh, I, I think we're still seeing the kind of ramifications of all that. And the and it's so, I'm fascinated to hear your side. How did this story come to you? Um, what was your initial response? Because we were talking about it. We had not seen a lot of UFO journalism from you prior to this, or was this your first kind of dip in the water, so to speak? Okay. All right. A lot of questions there. Let's, <laughs> know, un- a lot in there. Uh, let's unpack this thing. 
so I had been working on this a biography of John Mack called The Believer since uh, basically 2004 when he was run over in London and killed. And I'll, I'll tell you that story as we go on. So I had been working on on the subject, the field for, for quite some time, but just not in the New York Times. Um, I had been um, a, a staff correspondent, a reporter for the Times from 1964 to 2009, uh, when I retired from the Times, but still contributed articles, okay? And I'd been working on this John Mack story since 2004 on my own. So in uh, 2017, in October, Leslie Kane came to me and said that, um, I mean, she and I knew each other from my work on the John Mack book because okay. she was a companion of Bud Hopkins, as you probably know, uh, who was the one who first got John Mack interested in UFOs. So I knew of Leslie and we had been talking all along. Uh, but in 2017, October, she came to me and said she had just come back from Washington, where she um, participated in a very uh, sensational meeting with uh, intelligence people who revealed to her for the first time that the government uh, had a secret UFO program, uh, contrary to what was officially put out with the end of uh, Project Blue Book in, in um um 1969 uh, i think it was yeah yeah 69 i just blanked on the date but it's so <laughs> long ago so the government was supposedly out of the ufo business because there was nothing to it even though there were 701 cases left on the table that they couldn't explain but secretly the government was always interested in ufos we know that now and uh, around 2007 uh they set up this uh, secret Pentagon office uh, called OSIP. Originally, it became ATIP for Public Consumption, uh, Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. So Leslie found out about this program, um, and the head of it, Lou Elizondo, had just resigned because he was so fed up with the lack of uh, support from within the Pentagon. So it's quite sensational. There was this you know, agency doing this work secretly, uh, there were there were three videos which we eventually got a hold of showing encounters with um, uh, unknown objects, let's call them, uh, Navy jets. And um, there was a secret office funded with um, uh, $22 million from Harry Reid, the Senate Majority Leader. Um, and now Lou Elizondo is quitting. Uh, I couldn't ask for better than that. So that's the origin of the story. I took it to the New York Times to... Um, contacts I still had there. Uh, Leslie and I met with editors. We laid it all out. It was all on the record. There were no secret sources. Uh, you know, we had Lou Alessandro's performance record um, uh, showing he was in, in good uh, standing with the Pentagon. Uh, we had his resignation letter. We had the videos. So uh, what's not to like? <laughs> mm -hmm. And are you yeah. thinking this is a slam dunk or are you thinking this is going to be a big lift at the New York Times? I never Times? think that, you know, I mean, uh, I've been in the journalism business long enough to know that, uh, it, you know, you never really know till the story's out. Um, the editors asked a lot of good questions. Uh, I mean, they made us, you know, prove that we had the information we said we had, which we did. Um, we had it all documented. And um, so uh, it um, it was it was a really good story, which everyone could, at the Times could see. Uh, it ran on a Sunday on page one, 
uh, Helene Cooper, by the way, the Pentagon correspondent was part of our team because she she was the one who flew out to, to Harry Reid to interview him. And she was the one who got the Pentagon uh, confirmation. Uh, they didn't deny any part of the story. Um, so, you know, we had it. Um, so it was not a difficult story in, in retrospect. It was not a difficult story to get in the paper. The editors saw um, the strength of the story. They saw why it was a sensational story because this subject was supposedly, you know, uh, off the table. I mean, the government uh, had put out a lot of mis and disinformation over the years. Um, but but we had this story. So, and, it, you know, uh, as, as you indicated, uh, the fact that it was appearing in the New York Times gave it added, added power. Yeah. Now, did, did, did Helene Cooper take some convincing to come in on the team for this? No, I mean, uh, not at all. She, uh, she got it right away from the beginning. Um, we actually introduced her to Lou Elizondo at a meeting in Washington where, where Lou positioned himself with his, his back to the wall <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and a view of the door. Uh, it was very clever what he did. We, we met in a, in a restaurant and she, and uh, he um, uh, he wanted to, to check out the, the environs like all good intelligence people. But Helene came, she interviewed, you know, she joined the interview. She asked all the questions she wanted to ask. And she was um, not a difficult uh, uh, participant at all. She was very enthusiastic. Yeah, because I I didn't realize that you you had been working on the John Max story for that long. I didn't realize it it pre predated the uh, the 2017 article by such a, a period of time. A long time, and um, but I didn't try to get any uh, stories into the paper because you know the John Max story was a little different from the story we put in in the New York Times. Uh, there was nothing about aliens in the New York Times story, mm -hmm. and John Max whole. Uh, you know, investigation was based on these stories he got from uh, people who came to him with stories of alien encounters. He was a psychiatrist, so he was trying to figure out was this real or where did these, you know, events come from? He never solved the mystery, by the way. We we haven't to this day. But um, but the but the 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 Pentagon story that we broke in the New York Times said nothing about. Uh, where these objects were coming from, what what they were, uh, why they were here, you know, um, all those questions have to be put aside because we don't have the data on that. Um, it would just confuse us, and the Pentagon doesn't talk about that. They just say now, for the first time, this Pentagon is saying these objects are real. Uh, we have you know, tracked them on our instruments. Uh, they exist. They're not hallucinations. They're not, uh, you know, fly specks on the windshield. They're not, uh, you know, fabrications or hoaxes. All the things that were put out in years past, um, now they're saying, and this is why it's interesting, because we've come a long way. We, we still have a long way to go. But uh, I think it's often overlooked um, the the progress that's been made with the government now saying that these things are real and, and we don't know what they are. Uh, I, th I think that's significant progress. I agree. Oh, yeah, I, I was. That was one of my questions was, are you surprised to see where the government is on this issue? Because it's easy on a day to day basis to get encouraged or discouraged by the conversation, maybe arrows more forthcoming, less forthcoming, seems like they're 
you know, allies of the conversation or want it to go away. But are you are you optimistic overall by where this is where this is headed? Well, uh, it's a difficult question. Uh, as I say, I'm optimistic when I look back and see how far we've come. Um, I'm not optimistic when I see how much is still classified. This is a very, very difficult area to report in. Now, it's not difficult for some people on the Internet who just speculate. And, you know, I mean, um, if, you, if you're in this field to really report facts with named sources, uh, it, it's a very tough business because a lot of people are not going on the record. Um, and uh, a, a lot is still classified. I mean, we, you know, Leslie and I still pick up pieces of this and that, um, but to confirm it to the point where we can put that in the paper, whether it's the New York Times or any other publication, uh, because I'm not, a, you know, we're not Times staffers and I'm not with the Times anymore. So now we uh, we talk to a lot of different editors about what, what we're, you know, researching. Um, so, um, uh, but we have very high standards, uh, in terms of, you know, uh, confirming things. So, uh, and it's that considering how much is classified, it, it makes it very, very difficult. Is it, is it frustrating at all when you're, um, you know, all, all of the, the research and all of the, uh, basically the hurdles you have to go through to get the story published. And then, uh, it seems like department of defense can just float a phrase like no evidence of extraterrestrials. And a lot of the media will take that as an excuse to dismiss the entire topic and everything else that you've reported on. Is that a frustrating experience to go through? It is. Uh, and of course, um, you know, when they say no evidence, uh, you can take that in different ways. There is evidence, certainly, in the instrumentation um, that the instrumentation has picked up. I mean, there are objects picked up on, on radar tracks on um, a FLIR, the thermal imaging devices, eyeballed by pilots, which is not, you know, uh, instrumentation, but it's witness testimony. Um, but there are certainly a lot of uh, evidence in, in that sense. But what's lacking, of course, is the kind of slam dunk evidence um, that uh, that science requires. And I have no quarrel with that. Uh, it's, it's, it's true. Scientists are very hard to convince and uh, and and um, reasonable skeptics, and I want to make that distinction, uh, are fine. I mean, uh, they're good. They ask the questions that we have to answer. But what I object to um, are the people who call themselves skeptics and debunkers who have not done the research. They, they haven't looked at the data, which is voluminous, um, and they haven't considered it. They're very quick with um, explanations. Oh, it's a nightmare. These people have suffered a nightmare, or this is a hallucination, or this is, uh, you know, uh, sleep apnea, or, um, you know, sleep paralysis. I mean, there are millions of, not millions, there's a number of standard uh, explanations that we get from, from the so-called skeptics who haven't done the homework, because the more you look into this subject, the more complicated it becomes. And the and what John Mack found is that the, the simple so-called explanations don't add up. They don't hold water. I mean, they're not nightmares because they don't happen at night in many cases. These people have had encounters that seem to connect with some other dimension or uh, in, in some way that we cannot explain. Um, and none of the uh, the logical explanations hold up. And John Mack looked into this, and so have a lot of other scientists. So 
you know, as I say, the more you look into this, the more complicated it becomes. Your let and and since we're on the John Max subject, your book, The Believer, uh, is a terrific read. It's really compelling uh, roller coaster emotionally, just going through. Um, uh, and what a character study, because it is at times puzzling why John Mack takes this. Inc- he's a superstar uh, at Harvard. He has and he dives headfirst, kind of incautiously into this fringiest at the time, fringe subjects. There was the Whitley Strieber book. Um, but outside of that, this was uh, real unknown territory and and very outside where you would imagine what do you what do you think what do you think drew I want to know what drew you to John Mack, but I want to know what you think drew John Mack to this subject initially. Well, I, I, I'm flattered to be compared to John Mack because <laughs> I, in, in some ways we're alike. Uh, he was head and shoulders above me intellectually, uh, certainly and in his training, but uh, neither of us likes to be put off. Uh, I mean, the reason I became a journalist and had a you know 45 year career at the New York Times is I don't like people lying to me. Um, I feel uh, you know a need to get to the bottom of things. Uh, how successful I've been, I leave for others to to say. But um, so it, I, I would say in that sense, uh, I, I I'm proud to be compared to him. He he wouldn't take no for an answer. I mean, he was. Um, a very courageous guy. He was not a perfect person, as I say in the book. He had some flaws. Uh, he was a little too credulous. He had some other issues, but um, he had a lot to lose. Uh, he, as you say, he was very highly regarded at Harvard. He was a superstar. Uh, he had won a Pulitzer Prize with a biography of Lawrence of Arabia. So he was a, a scholar, um, uh, which some of his colleagues could never forget that he won a Pulitzer Prize and they didn't. Um, but he was he was a superstar, good looking guy too, a magnet for women and men. I mean, he was just uh, very charismatic. And yet um, he stumbled across this mystery, which I want to emphasize again, remains a mystery. We just mm-hmm. don't know what the hell this phenomenon is, um, but he would not let it go. And he was maybe uh, egotistical enough to think he could solve it. Right. That's one of my questions is what, yeah, what, what in him was, uh, you know. Uh, well, he, he, um, he was a wealthy guy um, and he had a lot of things going for him at, at Harvard. He went to Harvard Medical School um, and he thought um, that he had basically discovered this phenomenon. I mean, he, he didn't because Bud Hopkins told him about it, but he thought he kind of owned it. And he was going to solve it. And the more he interviewed people, the more he was convinced that he had stumbled onto some real big mystery, which he did. Um, and maybe he thought he could figure out what was behind it. Uh, but the more he got into it, and the more he eliminated all the other possibilities that I cited, that you know these people were. Um, you know, uh, hoaxing him, or they were deluded, or they were mentally ill, um, or, you know, they had all kinds of other reasons for coming up with these fake stories. Um, The more he eliminated all the other possibilities, the more he was convinced he'd stumbled onto something really basic um, and and mysterious, and he would not get, uh, uh, release his hold on it, even to the point when Harvard investigated him, a very sad chapter in my book. Uh, they put him through the ringer, 
and he came out all right. They, you know, they uh, pressed no charges against him. They said he was a little too enthusiastic, maybe, which he was, but uh, he certainly didn't do anything wrong, considering what Harvard had already investigated over the years. Harvard had yeah. been into a lot of strange stuff. Um, starting with William James, or maybe not even starting, but William James certainly with his investigations into the paranormal in the early 1900s. So, but they latched onto John Mack as some kind of, you know, uh, enemy that had to be vanquished. And th that was a big mistake on Harvard's part because uh, he, uh, he hadn't done anything wrong and he proved it. Uh, by the way, my book has the only account of what happened at Harvard. There was never any public account. This was a secret. It's a crazy story. Yeah. It's, it's a it's a crazy story, and it's amazing. I, I can't think of another example of this UFO topic being challenged in academia like this. I'm sure it probably has in some format, but this mm. was really fascinating. It was like the full well, Galileo David treatment. Jacobs, you know, had a similar story. I mean, he, he was a pioneer even before Bud Hopkins. He wrote the first... A big book on it uh, at the University of Indiana Press, um, the UFO controversy in America. Uh, he was an academic, a history professor who who mm. dug into it, and he also ran afoul of you know the administration there to the point where he was, I think, eventually hounded out of uh, academia. Um, but um, Temple University is where he was. He was actually teaching a course on UFOs, if you can imagine. And uh, he was also, uh, he had a lot of pushback eventually. Um, so, but you're right. There are not many stories like this of somebody who's risen so high in academia and Harvard Medical School, let's say, who um, uh, then is is attacked uh, for his, uh, secretly attacked too. It was not even public at the time. No, and it seemed like the uh, the attacks coming from Harvard were were filled with venom and condescension. And it seemed like a, it seemed strange to be so condescending to a man of so much achievement at the time. Well, this subject brings out the worst in people, uh, as you know. Um, and Leslie and I, and again, not to compare ourselves to John Mack, but in our reporting, we have encountered some of this too. Uh, if you look at the, the stuff on the internet that came out, um, that was uh, trying to get at our sources and second guess us when we were trying to report this, you know, word leaks out when you're talking to people reporting and people were trying to get at our sources and leaking information about it. Um, it became very uncomfortable. So it's I can also, imagine, you know, what John Mack dealt with. Yeah. Well, I think, you, well, the title of your book, Believer, um, reminds me that, that, uh, one of the, one of the main ways of discrediting someone like, like, like yourself and, and Leslie Kane is just to use that term believer. You know, other people will just say, "Well, you have to take their reporting with a grain of salt, as they are UFO believers." And so that that very term of believer. Yeah, I use that title kind of ironically, as I explain at the end of the book, that um, he he did believe in certain things. He believed in bettering, you know, the human experience by in, inquiring uh, into mysteries. He believed in social progress. He had a lot of. He was a believer in that sense. Um, and he was a bit of a believer in in UFOs in the sense that um, he was inclined in the beginning, especially to take the accounts of people at face value um, when they told him they had encountered, you know, alien beings and were taken on their spaceship and had reproductive experiments performed on them and all that. Um, 
uh, he tended to uh, accept it as as some kind of reality. Um, now, which Bert Hopkins did even more, and David Jacobs did even more. So, uh, but but Mac broke with them at some point. He broke away and realized that these things are not happening in any reality we can recognize um, because we don't see them going on. We don't see UFOs landing. We don't see people being abducted. There's no evidence um, uh, that, that we can, you know, collect of these things actually happening. Um, so it has to be happening in some other dimension or reality that we don't understand. That's what really distinguished him. Um, and what makes the subject, again, even more uh, challenging. <laughs> yeah. How would that 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 sense that it's not happening in a reality that we understand would would that be challenged for him well, by the aerial phenomenon? I was wondering if the aerial phenomenon. Well, aerial let's talk about that. the aerial phenomenon. But first yeah. of all, let's say that the people who've had these experiences they challenge that and they say this was real. John, right. they they fought with him. Some of his people and said, "Don't tell me this happened in some other reality. This was my reality. This is more real to me than I'm talking to you." That's what they'd say. Um, and yet, uh, uh, if a wife was experiencing this or a husband was experiencing this, the partner would be sleeping next to them if it was at night or in the car and not experiencing this. So uh, what kind of an experience is that where two people in the same place have radically different experiences and one is, is shut down, let's say, or doesn't experience it and the other does. So it, it's a very strange phenomenon that we can say that, but let's talk about the aerial phenomenon. I mean, this was a school um, outside Harare, Zimbabwe in 1995, I believe, where 60 school children uh, at recess saw a craft land and two beings get out. And after, and they got telepathic messages from these beings, they said afterwards, and they drew pictures of the craft and pictures of these beings. And none of the teachers uh, were around, uh, weirdly. Um, so, um, and yet, uh, here we have uh, um, congruent accounts, uh, similar, very similar accounts from 60 different kids um, who had not read, you know, UFO books. They had not seen UFO movies. So presumably they were not primed to, you know, to regurgitate stuff that was in the popular culture, which is what always convinced John Mack that they were uh, good witnesses. Um, and yet they, and, and when you see the film, there are a lot of film John Mack took and uh, Randy Nickerson took for his movie. Um, you, these kids don't seem to be, um, you know, making it up, you know, when, when they're being interviewed, they're, they're very good witnesses. They're just telling like kids, very straightforward. Um, now that doesn't mean kids can't lie. Kids can't be confused. Of course they can. Uh, kids can make up stories, but 60 kids all making up the same story, um, and yet with little differences. So it's not like a script that they were following. I mean, come on. Um, something happened there that we don't understand. I thought it was a, kind of an amazing sort of last chapter in some ways of John Mack's abduction research to have gone through this inquiry, this inquisition to be slandered in the press, to be putting all his prestige on the line. And then just miraculously, this event, you know, as you said, 60 kids see this single event and have this encounter, I thought was 
wow, that's what sort of a what a redemptive sort of experience for him. And, and I was gonna, I, but the one thing I read in, that I didn't realize, and Dave and I were talking about this earlier, I didn't realize the buildup to this event at this school that there had been so much sort of UFO UAP activity in the area and around surrounding countries. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, um, uh, it turned out um, that uh, there were sightings of things flying over the airport, which is how uh, John Mack got into this. There was a a BBC correspondent, again, a very credible guy. He works for the BBC in Harare, and he gets a call from a source of his saying that something very weird and large flew over the airport, and uh, they were trying to track it. And and these were airport people who were telling him this. So he could he called around and other people found a lot of other witnesses who had seen something big flying over the airport that they couldn't identify, a UFO. And he was the one who contacted John Mack and um, and eventually John flew out. But other people, Cynthia Hines, who was a UFO expert in Africa, who came there and and uh, searched the area, actually, uh, the terrain, and saw some evidence of disturbance in the grass. Um, again, this kind of fragmentary evidence that is not, um, you know, a slam dunk, but it's interesting. Um, so, yeah, so there were a lot of other, uh, some some incidents beforehand, let's say, priming yeah. this, this thing. It wasn't the first time. And afterwards, kids said there was another landing after that. <laughs> Um, so, um, there was a kind of a series of things that was interesting. Yeah. I, one of the things I got from watching, I watched Randall Nickerson's movie a couple of times now. And, um, one of the things you pick up from it is the incredible amount of empathy and humanity that John Mack brought to the subject and to the people who had experienced the, the, this phenomena that the, just the incredible warmth and humanity he brought to it. He was a very yes. good interviewer. Um, he had, you know, three three boys of his own, and uh, he was very interested in his own boys in terms of their psychological development. And he used them as 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 material for his inquiries into, you know, childhood development. Also, he had studied nightmares. He wrote a whole book on nightmares. So when people said to him, "Oh, John, you don't understand. You know, these people are just having a nightmare." Uh, I mean, he said, look, I know about nightmares. I wrote a book about nightmares. You know, I know what nightmares are. And all these people who told him these stories would say afterwards, look, I've had nightmares. This wasn't a nightmare. This was as real as I'm telling you. Um, And we, you know, we hear that again and again. Uh, And I've talked to experiencers myself. And I hear this, um, people saying, this was not a nightmare. Uh, This was, this really happened. And afterwards, there's some, again, marks on their bodies in some cases that they can't explain. Um, sometimes they're multiple witnesses. Um, you know, there's one case that John Mack wrote about that I always think about. It's really one of the strangest cases. Um, he um, he interviewed uh, two, two uh, family of two girls, two little girls who had a sleepover one night. And uh, during the night, the mother of the host Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Girl went down to check on the kids and, f- and found them missing. It was terrifying. The two girls were, were not there. And uh, she called the police and they came and they searched and couldn't find the girls. And the next morning they turned up back in their beds. And later they had a memory uh, of some kind of seeing a UFO outside the window and some kind of a UFO experience. Now, here's a case where a mo- and John Mack interviewed the mother who said, I went down and the girls were missing. The, the, it's, it's a matter of a police record that the police came and searched. So oh here's a case where there actually was con- witness confirmation that the kids weren't there. Uh, that's very interesting. Mm-hmm. That's incredibly interesting. Um I I, the, I was wondering what you thought um, John Mack, was this about, you, you've mentioned in the book, you know, he lost his mother at an early age. Um, he was so, you know, empathetic to these people, willing to invest his reputation in just their stories, um, that trust. It, was it, was it his, did, did <laughs> let me try to frame this right. Did he want it to be true too much, do you think, initially? That's a good question. Yeah, I think he, he, he saw it as a kind of an, a confirmation. Um, I mean, look, we, we don't know why scientists pursue certain things. You know, why did Einstein get so interested in gravity and, and energy and mass, you know? Um, so obviously it's inextricable from their personal stories. They're interested in their environment. You know, uh, again, it's, it doesn't always represent a one-to-one, you know, equation to take Einstein's term, but uh, there are some human factors that go into why people do things. So certainly in John Mack's case, um, he was eight and a half months old when his mother died, his birth mother died of um, appendicitis. And he never understood why she was taken away from him. He suddenly, you know, she wasn't there. And it was a terribly traumatic part of his life. And then his father remarried soon and he had a stepmother, but it wasn't the same thing. Um, you know, a very good stepmother, but very accomplished woman, another professor, but his mother was missing. Hmm. So he himself said, being a psychiatrist, uh, um, I think he said, I was always searching for my mother. Uh, and the, I was always searching for something missing in the universe. And when he started coming across this uh, phenomenon of some intelligence in the universe, apparently some, uh, you know, um, mysterious other, you know, intelligence in the universe, uh, that happened to comport with what he was searching for anyway. Um, and he he himself said that. Um, so, um, and I in the book I talk about one episode where he was 
um, analyzed basically by a, a close friend, a woman who, who knew about UFO experiences through some relaxation techniques. And he suddenly had this insight that um, that's why, you know, he was searching, uh, you know, for something missing in the universe. And uh, he felt so alone and abandoned and he wanted it to be true. Uh, I think that's that was a flaw in yeah. his in his method, uh, because he wanted it to be true. And when he came up with these stories, it sort of fit neatly into. Uh, but again, I mean, he 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 was serious about investigating. He didn't just accept these accounts. He right. he really applied his full, uh, you know, uh, professional training to, to try to unravel the mystery. Well, you, you brought David Jacobs up earlier, and I know I've heard David Jacobs criticize Mac's work with, with abductees or experiencers uh, for being too too uh, credulous with them and not being rigorous enough in filtering out things that might be confabulation. Do you feel like that was a, a, a valid criticism? I don't think that's procedure? a valid criticism. I, I think the criticism that uh, Jacobs and, uh, and Bud Hopkins had uh, for Mac was that he didn't accept the reality of these experiences. He backed away from them. Um, I mean, um, I have read a lot of Mac's accounts uh, of, of his interviews with these people. Um, and uh, I did not come away thinking that he had put his thumb on the scale or that he was putting words in their mouth. As a matter of fact, if you read his book, Abduction, which was his first book, 13 Case Studies, he goes to a lot of trouble looking into the backgrounds of all these people. Um, it's it's a wonderful book, uh, very detailed about their experiences these people had that they told Mac about and their lives beforehand. And he was looking for obvious signs of trauma for sexual uh, trauma. So maybe they had some problem that they that came out later as an you know a, a alien abduction experience. But no. These were very ordinary people in every other way. So I don't think that's a valid uh, criticism. I mean, if anything, I think Hopkins and and uh, Jacobs were more inclined to take these experiences at face value. They were the ones who kept insisting these don't this is not a metaphor, they said to Mac. This is real. These people really were abducted by real aliens. So um uh, I don't think it's fair to, for them to criticize Mac for, for uh, you know, for what you just said. I think uh, uh, they were the ones who, who kept saying that this happened in our reality. These were mm -hmm. real. Mac was saying, no, I don't think so. Yeah, and if you, I, I definitely know, well, Jacobs, I know now, is, is certainly has a much darker view of the abductive phenomenon than uh, John Mack had. Like you certainly come forward with well, it's both. You know, you read Whitley Strieber, and he had the most horrific experiences, and yet he said um, there is something there that binds him to these beings, this intelligence. Um, so even the people with the most traumatic stories um, of having, you know, reproductive uh, matter taken from them, men and women, eggs. Uh, for, you know, breeding purposes, or so they say in their accounts, uh, even they um, uh, say that there's another element to this, that they feel more uh, attached to the universe, that they feel more 
um, uh, you know, inclined to protect the earth from from pollution, um, you know, that kind of thing. So it's it's complicated. Even even those people um, come away with some kind of 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 love uh, or attachment to, to to this intelligence, whatever it is. And when we talk about uh, experiences that, that brought John Mack to maybe want to explore this, can I ask you, was there a previous experience to your interest in John Mack that led you to be interested in John Mack? Was there any uh, just curiosity about UFOs or, or abduction phenomena prior to that? Or was it, was it did you, well, I guess, what, what was your journey of credulity in this subject? Uh, I have not had a UFO experience like John Mack has not had, did not have. He always thought he felt, you know, out of it, like he he wished he had because uh, he kept hearing these amazing stories. By the way, he was an experimenter himself. I mean, he experimented with drugs, um, hallucinogenic drugs. He wanted to explore these, you know, strange frontiers of the mind. Um, so he would have been very happy, I think, to have had a UFO experience, uh, but he never did. He never saw a UFO. He was never abducted. Um, and later he thought, well, maybe it was better because he, he came with a clean slate. Uh, and I got to say the same thing. I have not had a UFO experience. I haven't seen the UFO. I've never been abducted. Um, I have a spiritual side to me that I was brought up, you know, fairly religious in the Jewish household. And I still feel that, uh, you know, uh, I'm not a materialistic to the point where I rule out any spiritual component to 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 existence. Um, so in that sense, I'm like a lot of other people who feel that there's some, you know, intelligence in the universe, some benign force in the universe. Um, but I can't say that's because I had some experience. Um, I just never there, have. But was there a previous curiosity on the subject before you came to the John Mack story or, or was it? I read a lot of science fiction. As a kid, mm -hmm. you know, in those days, science fiction was a big deal after the war. And um, I was always interested in science fiction. But so were millions of other people who didn't investigate UFOs, mm -hmm. write about them. So and I lost that interest. I mean, I still, you know, will read a science fiction story occasionally. I'm, you know, but I'm, I'm not a fan now of science fiction literature, particularly. It's not one of the things I seek out and do. So um, I can't say that that was what got me interested. You know, I got to tell you, what got me interested is I just picked up a book by John Mack one day. I was the New York Times correspondent in Texas. And uh, I used to, you know, frequent the used bookstores. And I just came across this book, his second book, Passport to the Cosmos. And just as a journalist, I thought it was interesting that a, a, a noted Harvard professor of psychiatry was writing about alien experiences. I thought that was strange. And, and interesting. And I thought he'd make a good story for the New York Times. Um, and just when I thought I'd call him up and, and interview him, I didn't know he was already really quite famous. I didn't realize that. But when I thought I'd call him up, that's when I read in the paper he'd been run over and killed in London. So that's what got me started. Um, it was a journalistic impulse to, to look into an area I really didn't know much about and was interested in. I thought it was a good story. Well, I guess speaking of impulses, but what, what was what was the impulse? Because you've written a, chil a children's book on the subject of UFOs. Yeah, it's funny how things work out. You know, uh, while I was researching the John Mack book, uh, my wife, who's a children's book author, 
and has written uh, adult uh, literature and middle grade as well, but mostly children's books. She would hear me on the phone, you know, talking about aliens and UFOs. And one day she came to me and said, why don't we do a children's book? Um, and it turned out that there are no children's books that are factual, you know, not strictly nonfiction picture books for young readers. And there's a lot of sensational, you know, made up stories. So we looked into it. And we thought that was a good idea because uh, children, you know, pick up a lot of stuff from television and they hear people talking and they don't know how to think about this um, from a strictly factual point of view. You know, what's real about these objects? So um, we came up with this book, which is called UFOs, O-H-S. Mm. Um, and it was beautifully illustrated by an artist we we knew that had worked with my wife on another book, Adam Gustafson, and he uh, he did a wonderful job of uh, illustrating this phenomenon. In and you know, children's book is very limited. Uh, it, it's a picture book. It's for six to nine, maybe a little older, maybe a little younger, but it's it's that age where they can't grasp complicated subjects, and it's a way we thought to get parents talking to their children about it. Again, nothing about aliens. We don't speculate about, you know, why are they here? What do they want? Just the fact that there are these objects, which nobody understands, that have now been confirmed by the Pentagon. And uh, it, it might be well for children to uh, understand that, at least, uh, because they're going to be growing up in a world where this will be a big topic. It makes me think of the conversation we've had um, about the government effort from very early on, Blue Book and before, to uh, to to disinform, to make it a uh, a joke, to uh, push people into a place where they have an automatic, instinctive reaction when they hear UFO. It's nice to see sort of, you know, a, a different aspect to that, um, and I think that's I think that's a nice nice gentle pushback to what we've culturally been, you know. That's a very good point. I mean, we're going to see, this is early on, the book's only been out a few weeks now, um, but we would like to see how it's being received around the country in schools and libraries, because you're right, there's still a stigma attached to this subject, um, and politicians duck, duck away from it. People in Congress who are supposed to be investigating this phenomenon are still, uh, you know, quite uh, reluctant uh, to go on the record. Um, it's better than it used to be, uh, but uh, there's still um, that that giggle factor, you know, when you bring up the subject. Uh, so we we did want to try to reduce that and say it's okay to talk about it. Uh, there is something real, which the government now confirms, um, although we don't know what it is. Um, so uh, it, it's a, it is not an easy subject. Well, thanks to you and Leslie Kane and Helene Cooper and and others like you, I, that that is now something that cannot be taken back. The government did say these objects are real. That is a huge new platform to stand on uh, with this whole conversation. We. We want this podcast to be a bridge for those who are vaguely curious, not all the inside baseball of who's mad at who or UFO Twitter or all that, but more just speak with people, you know, serious journalists like yourself, people that have really researched this, because I think the the conversation settled as to whether or not they're here or is it is it 
we know something is happening. And now it's just a question of how does how do we culturally digest it? What are the ramifications of this? And how do we get more people to push for information um, from our government? Yeah, and I think the work you've done, and, also, and I think adding to it the children's book, because yeah. there's, there's been so much real harm done to real people who have had experiences that they can't explain over the years. And it's been deliberately orchestrated. That harm has been deliberately, um, um, like, Basically, society's been directed to create that harm by people who wanted to control the story. And, you know, they, they've suffered in, in, in uh, twice over because, first of all, they're often traumatized by the experience that they've had uh, because it's very unsettling. It, it's very frightening. Um, and secondly, then when they try to talk about it, they're, uh, they're ridiculed. And uh, the government had a, a policy, actually, uh, sadly, um, years ago after the war, uh, kind of starting with Roswell uh, and the years after, to, to stigmatize people who, who did come forward uh, because the government uh, couldn't explain it. They wanted to keep information from adversaries. Um, they, they, they couldn't, uh, I mean, government officials couldn't protect America, couldn't protect Americans. I mean, it was happening all over the world, but for our government, they felt that they, they really were powerless. And their answer was, well, let's just deny the phenomenon, not admit that there's something there that we can't explain, but let's just say that the people who are reporting this are laughable. And, and that uh, has endured to some extent to this day, although it's 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 less. But um, that is that is a big problem. So the people who, who this has happened to, and I say happened to because it's not their doing. I mean, and why certain people are having these experiences and others not is another dimension of the mystery. I mean, may, maybe uh, Mac thought uh, it, it it runs in families um, as like some kind of tracking program that if parents have, you know, had these experiences, children are more likely and the grandparents are more likely. So it does seem to to be in family groups, but not, you know, not to the point where it's, it's, it's strictly documentable. There just seems to be that, that dimension to it, but why some people, uh, you know, and have these experiences and others don't like me, um, we don't know. I mean, I think uh, there be, there will be some um, uh, possible breakthroughs um, in analyzing the the brains and bodies of people with these experiences. I think that that is one of the goals of new research being done by by some very reputable scientists trying to figure out well um, what is it. Uh, in certain people that might make them more um, amenable or targetable or whatever, uh, because that can be scientifically, presumably can be scientifically tested. Yeah. Are, are you are you able to say which who is working on that research right now? Gary Nolan at, San, at Stanford is one of the people. Uh, Jacques Vallée um, has been his ally in that. Um, uh, and I think there are probably others. I don't know all of them, but um, but there is interest in that. I mean, the whole you know subject now of this Havana syndrome, right, mm -hmm. uh, is really tantalizing because here are people, mostly intelligence people, military people, who have suffered 
some kind of effect from some kind of you know force uh, that, that has singled them out. And it's happened globally, not just in Havana now, right? They've had experience. The Havana syndrome has happened everywhere. Absolutely. It was known called Havana syndrome because it was first recognized uh, for the Americans working at the American mission in Havana. But um, it's super strange. And uh, what's most interesting is the government can't seem to find any confirmation for, for why people have been suffering these effects. And I think in some ways it's analogous to people who um, have suffered or, or feel they've suffered some effects from encounters with uh, with UFOs. I mean, in Rendlesham Forest in England, uh, there was one case of an American who actually, I think, collected money from the government because of uh, damage he said he suffered from exposure to a UFO. Uh, that's the only case I'm aware of that's really been documented. Um, John Burroughs, I think was his name. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, I mean, Whitley Strieber has written extensively about effects on his body, uh, which he feels he, he has suffered. And um, uh, when you get into the question of implants, uh, the, the, the information is difficult. You know, have implants been recovered? There's different accounts of that. Uh, John Mack uh, tried to investigate that. He hit a brick wall. Um uh, it, it's part of the, this phenomenon does not want to be uh, found out. <laughs> mm -hmm, right. you know, it's not like an accident that so little information, concrete information is available. It's part of the mystery. It reminds me of the, the, um, the, the quote that you uh, credit in some way to the late John Mack, who was, uh, there were some really interesting experiences after his death. Um, that you talk about in the book. And I found, I mean, I've just his loss and after going through the journey of the book is really, it's, it's an emotional loss. Um, just the way how quickly he just vanished, um, just taken hit by the car, but it was just such a sudden random, um, event. But then you, then there were some experiences that his friends or colleagues had. I mean, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I, I left that for the end of the book because uh, it really is very amorphous. Um, uh, I mean, the whole subject is amorphous, but this was even more amorphous because after after he died, um, uh, after Mac died, uh, friends and colleagues, uh, some of them, not everybody, uh, felt that they had encountered his, his spirit or his presence in some way. And um, in one of the really most intriguing um, little stories I put at the end of the book, um, a colleague of his, uh, Roberto Colasanti, who worked with him, uh, was sitting with a medium. Um, and uh, at one point, the medium said, well, uh, somebody named John, uh, well, actually the medium knew John, he'd worked with John, he said, John has, has materialized here, and he has a message for you. And she was very interested, and you know, what is it? And the medium said, his message is, it's not what we think. <laughs> and she was uh, mystified. What's not what we think? But <laughs> mm -hmm. you can't go back to his spirit and say, "Could you explain, please, what you really mean?" So she she kept thinking, "What what was that? What what did it mean?" And then years later, um, her husband died. Roberta's husband died, and she 
uh, was again with a medium and the medium said that her husband's spirit had appeared and he had a message for her. And this time the message was death is not what we think. <laughs> and so that might have added a little more information. <laughs> Oh uh, so he cornered John yeah. in the after afterlife. What the hell were you yeah. going on John, about? Was, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, um, uh, I was going to say, um, oh, by, you know, John, at the end of his life, was interested in, in survival of consciousness. Um, and he did. It's interesting. He expanded his um, his research from uh, UFOs and alien abduction phenomenon to um, survival of consciousness and crop circles and the Holy Grail and a lot of other things that are, are mysterious, but particularly what happens after we die. Um, so in that sense, I guess he was kind of curious to die. <laughs> um, although he wouldn't have said it that way. Uh, there were people who thought that he he was kind of ready at that point in his life. He, he was kind of worn out anyway. But uh, I, I wouldn't say he committed suicide by jumping in front of a car, but it, it was not entirely unexpected considering how tired he was and that he was in London looking the wrong way and all that. Anyway, um, but he was exploring um, a lot of other paranormal phenomena and particularly survival of consciousness because he was writing a book about uh, the daughter uh, Russell Targ, who had done a lot of experiments with uh, remote viewing, interesting paranormal experiments, the ability that a lot of people seem to have to in, to see things, to envision things uh, far away, thousands of miles away, getting images by what means we don't know, but it's part of, you know, paranormal phenomena like clairvoyance and telepathy and all kinds of other things. Anyway, John was writing a book about Russell's daughter, Elizabeth, um, who was also a very brilliant psychiatrist who was studying uh, brain cancer and died of brain cancer, as it turned out very ironically. And after she died very young, um, her family said that they uh, were getting messages from her uh, after she died. And... Um, so he was very intrigued by that. He didn't get far in the book by the time when, when he died, but he clearly was a subject that was intriguing him. What happens after we die? And he thought, well, maybe it's tied in with the UFO phenomenon. Maybe it's all part of some unseen world or dimension that we can't understand yet, maybe someday, um, but a very mysterious and yet there's something more to to the universe than than what we can see and feel at this point, you know, with our senses. So um, uh, it is interesting that he encountered that himself at, uh, maybe after he died. Mm -hmm. Well, it doesn't seem like an uncommon progression uh, for people who have embraced the UFO phenomenon to then become curious academically or, or you know, uh, curious about consciousness itself and how it, how it all connects. It seems like, uh, obviously, Leslie Kane has uh, written a book on the subject, too, and, um, and Bigelow has de devoted a lot of funds to researching persistence of, uh, of consciousness after death. And, uh, yeah, so it seems like it's not an uncommon, or maybe it's a natural progression for this Well, when you, you know, when you become aware of um, uh, certain questions, uh, or, you, or you question the basis of our reality, um, 
you don't stop right there. I mean, you, you keep asking questions about other things. Um, you know, is there a God? Um, you know, um, what happens after we die? Uh, all these questions, uh, you know, big questions. Uh, where did, you know, the universe come from? Where What, what happened before the Big Bang? You know, um, so uh, it, it is a natural question. When after you look, you know, you 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 study the UFO phenomenon and uh, the strange stories that have come out of that, you th start bumping up against other strange stories, and uh, so it, it is. It does make a kind of a sense that you would expand your interest. Yeah, I guess maybe when, once you cut those mooring ropes to certainty, you never know where you're going to drift. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And the questions get, you know, more and more. And by the way, again, I want to emphasize that these are all mysteries. Uh, I don't pretend to solve them in my book. Uh, the subtitle of the book, the children's book my wife and I did, uh, Debbie and I did, is um, uh, UFOs, Mysteries uh, mysteries in the Sky, um, because they are mysteries and uh, and nobody knows. And the, the, the so-called skeptics or debunkers who have the answers don't really have the answers because the answers are not answers. They don't answer the, the question. They are mystery. We don't know. Uh, we have to maintain our humility. We have to keep asking. Uh, definitely need to keep, you know, uh, searching for the answers um, and be open to the answers. Um, but uh, anybody who tells you that, oh, they're, they're, you know, this is clearly this or that, uh, that that's ridiculous. And it offends me. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess thank you so much for giving us this time today. We really appreciate it. This uh, has been great. Yes, I think that's a great uh, sentiment to go out on, as that people should be humility, humil <laughs> humil humility in the face of our massive ignorance. And uh, good. And anyone listening, please read the Believer, um, the John Max story. The and subtitle of it is Alien Encounters, Hard Science, and the Passion of John Mack. And uh, the, it's really fantastic. And um, if you have children, get UFOs. Get UFOs. Get, get them. Get them ready for what might be coming. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much for your work on this issue, for pushing us closer to some answers. Uh, we'd love to speak with you again sometime. Great. Thank you for having me. A real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Rob. Thank you so much. Right. Take care. Bye bye. Planning for your next trip. Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.